want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, also hit the like button on this video. And any other platform, your five-star rating and review is a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. So today's podcast episode is inspired by a Twitter poll that I put forward a week or two ago. The Twitter poll was this, what best approximates an investment's rate of return if you assume no multiple expansion? I gave four options. First, earnings yield plus growth. Second, dividend yield plus growth. Third, just solely the earnings slash revenue growth. And fourth, just the dividend or earnings yield. Of the four of those, one of those is one which I prefer. I want you to think about that for a second, which do you think makes the most sense? Is it the earnings yield plus growth, dividend yield plus growth, earnings or revenue growth, dividend or earnings yield? Those are your options. The most popular answer was the earnings yield plus growth, with 66.7% responses affirming that that was the best method by which to assess an investment's rate of return. 14% answered dividend yield plus growth, 17.5% answered earnings slash revenue growth, and 1.8% answered dividend slash earnings yield. What I found astounding about this response was that 86% of my followers on Twitter that responded have a different view than me on how to assess intrinsic value in terms of an investment's rate of return. My view is that the best method of doing so is the dividend yield plus growth. Yet 66% of people said it was earnings yield plus growth. Only 14% answered the same as I would. And so I thought it was useful to make a podcast to talk about this concept because it's clear that many of my followers, at least on Twitter, and likely listening to this podcast, have a different view than I do. In episode 85 of of this show, I talked about the Gordon growth model and talking about how DCFs can be bad and that being precise with the DCF is harmful. And in that discussion, the Gordon growth model uses this dividend plus growth method of valuing a company. But it's clear that many people don't either accept this to be true or have a different view when they think about it for themselves. There's also a chance that I badly worded the poll, and so I got some um, misstated results. That's always possible. But I think it's interesting. So I want to talk through some of these ideas today. And I think it's very helpful here. And I don't yet know how I'm going to name this podcast, but the concepts I want to talk about are two things. One is cost of growth, and the second one is earnings asset equivalence. 
These are two mental models that I think are very helpful for investors to understand and I think can help solve the problems in the differences that we receive in this question. So what best approximates an investment's rate of return if you assume no earnings multiple? You see, so I use shareholder distributions plus growth to estimate long-term investment returns. And the shareholder distributions is your div- is basically dividends plus share- net share repurchases, which would be the percent increase in your holding of the company because share buybacks have occurred. So if dividend yield is 2% and the company buys back 5% of its shares every year, then your shareholder distribution rate is 7%. Now, my poll wasn't exactly along lines of this because I said dividends plus growth instead of shareholder distributions plus growth. And this is mainly just a Twitter concern because you're limited to the number of characters you can put in the poll. But I thought this was reasonable because you can also assess share repurchases as a portion of growth because technically they're not distributed to ongoing shareholders. They're actually a form of capital allocation where you retain earnings and you use that to buy out other shareholders. So it does contribute to your growth portion. You can see a shareholder distribution as either a 5% dividend if it's 5% of shares bought back or 5% growth in earnings per share. I like to think of it as 5% growth in earnings per share because you actually aren't seeing a difference other than your earnings per share increasing. So basically the only value that um, share repurchases has is the increment in which they increase earnings per share. If shareholder, if share repurchases don't increase earnings per share, then they're basically they're useless to you. They're either dealing with and di- offsetting dilution, which could be valuable in its own, but there's a certain cost to that. But it's all just part of the retained earnings for the growth. So it's interesting because only 14% of people agreed with this point of view. And I think the reason for my answer being correct that it's about your dividends plus growth is that retained earnings are typically necessary in order to receive future earnings growth rates. You see, if you use the concept of the first question, the the first answer that two-thirds of the people said was accurate, if you say that earnings yield plus growth is the way to value a rate of return, you fall into the problem of double counting. So let's say I have an example here where the company has an earnings yield of 8%. The company is growing 10% a year, and they have a 2% dividend yield. So I would value this company on a super simplistic basis of saying you have your dividend yield of 2% plus the growth method of 10%. So 2% plus 10% is 12%. So you have a 12% expected rate of return. However, if you use earnings yield plus growth, what you'll see is then that expected rate of return goes from two from 12% up to 18% because your earnings yields 8% and you add the 10% growth and then you have 8 plus 10 is equal to 18. Well, there's a huge difference between 18% annualized rate of return and a 12% annualized rate of return. Now, they're both good rates of return, but they're substantially different in, in what your end wealth will be if you're able to compound at 18% versus 12% over a long period of time. So it's important that we understand the correct way of analyzing this. 
Well, I think the problem with earnings yield plus growth is that you fall into this issue of double counting. And what you're doing is you're double counting retained earnings. You see, the definition of earnings yield is your distribution plus your retained earnings. Those are your two components in earnings yield. You have the distributions, which is your share buybacks and dividends. And you have your retained earnings, which is what's used as part of the growth. And that's what you'll see. So the retained earnings go to the balance sheet. But the growth is equal to retained earnings times return on incremental invested capital, which is R-O-I-I-C. But usually it's shortened because you can't actually really calculate return on an incremental invested capital. It's easiest to just say that it's return on invested capital. So if your return on invested capital for the company is, say, 15%, well, every time you retain earnings, you might expect to get a 15% return on those earnings. The problem is, is that because growth is equal to the retained earnings times the return on invested capital, but your earnings yield is the distributions plus the retained earnings. If you say your return is earnings yield plus growth, what you're actually saying is your return is earnings yield your return is equal to distributions plus retained earnings plus retained earnings times return on invested capital. You see how retained earnings is in the equation twice. You have to be very careful about this because on the simple definition, the simple face of it, you retained earnings doesn't show up. All I said was earnings yield plus growth. But the difference here is, is when we take earnings yield out of the equation and instead put in dividend yield, the second retained earnings falls out. So now your return is dividend yield plus growth or return is equal to distributions plus retained earnings times return on invested capital. So here we're taking into account the fact that the company is retaining some amount of earnings and using that earnings to grow. We're not ignoring the extra 6% between the 8% earnings yield and the 2% dividend yield. We're taking that 6% into account, but we're using that 6% in order to achieve the 10% growth. We're using that 6% of retained earnings in order to find our growth, to buy equipment, to buy land, to train employees, do research and development. We're using that money in order to help the company grow and perform better in the future. So the key here is is that there is a cost to growth. Growth doesn't come free. Now, this is true for most companies. For some companies, it does come free. But for most companies, a vast, vast majority of companies, growth is not free. It costs you something. And what it costs you is the earnings, the retained earnings, the retained capital that you need to purchase equipment, to purchase land, to purchase stuff that helps you grow, purchase advertisements, anything, any asset that they that the company needs to grow is what they're using the retained earnings for. And this cost is shows up in how shareholders are treated. You see, if a company pays dividends, it cannot use that capital to grow. Likewise, if a company retains earnings to grow, it cannot use that capital to pay dividends. If you fail to account for this cost of growth, it will lead you to overvalue growth companies because what you might do is say, I get this fast-growing company, 10%, plus I get their dividend, 
plus I get the retained earnings. And that's a problem because now you're double counting. Instead, you need to take into account that those assets that are being retained on the balance sheet are being used to grow the company. Now, notice how I said growth is not free for most companies. There are some companies, a few rare companies, that don't require incremental capital to grow. These are companies with returns on invested capital so high as to basically be meaningless. We're talking about returns on invested capital over 100% or sometimes infinite returns on cap- invested capital. Companies might not rec- need any money at all in the business in order to keep growing. These are very prime, high-quality companies that are the types of companies you want to be able to own over long periods of time. A few good examples are Omnicon, ticker OMC, over-the-counter markets, ticker OTCM, and Moody's, ticker MCO. These are companies that are able to grow without putting additional capital into the business, which means that their returns are going to be like earnings yield plus growth because they're not retaining any earnings. However, my definition still works for these companies because if your earnings yield plus growth would be equal to dividend yield plus growth because all of their earnings could be distributed as dividends while still growing the company. It's important to understand though that these companies are rare. So even though my formula works best because their distributions will equal or exceed the earnings yield if they don't require retaining of earnings. It's very problematic if you assume that every company is like this, and that's what people are implicitly doing if they simply take the earnings yield of a company and and then add the growth, because they're assuming that all of that earnings that are being retained is unnecessary to achieve the growth the company is trying to achieve. And I think it is. For a vast majority of companies, companies require capital to grow. They require capital to buy equipment. They require capital to buy land. They require capital to build buildings. It is a rare company that doesn't need to do any of those things. If your company is buying land, buying equipment, they're not going to be one of these rare companies and you need to be very careful to not overvalue their current earnings if those current earnings are not being distributed to you as dividends. So this leads me to another important point, which I think is, which I'm calling the asset earnings equivalence mental model. Um, I've heard it a few other places before with varying definitions, but I think this is the best way to think about it. Companies have both assets and earnings. And the best counter-argument I've seen to the thought process I just walked you through is that the retained earnings don't disappear. So when a company retains those earnings, that 6% difference between the earnings yield and the dividend yield, they go to the balance sheet. They don't disappear. They're used to buy land. They're used to buy equipment. They're used to buy assets. And those assets have value and can be sold later. You see, so the argument that I heard when I was trying to talk to people and figure out, okay, well, how is it that my view is correct, that the dividend yield is the only one that matters, and that's added to the growth? What are you doing with the retained earnings? They're not going away. They're going on the balance sheet. They have terminal value. And this is correct. 
it's a very astute observation and it's a great counter argument because what it does is it shows that the assets don't go away. When you retain earnings, they're buying stuff and those that stuff has value. The problem is if you assume those assets have value and are going to be sold later and they're going to be some part of some terminal value of the company, this is when you can get into another double counting problem. You see, assets are only as valuable as the earnings they create. If you sell the assets in some terminal valuation, in 20 years you say, okay, well, the company's going to wind down. I'm going to sell the assets. So that balance sheet, I'm going to liquidate the land, liquidate the capital, liquidate the buildings. And therefore, I get the assets back. Well, if you do that, the earnings also disappear. So if you're valuing the company on earnings, you have to assume in order to get an asset value back as a terminal value, you have to assume that the earnings terminal value is zero. Likewise, the equivalent way of looking at it is that if you're going to assume a terminal value for earnings, then you need to assume the asset value is zero. You don't get both. Because if you sell the assets, the earnings that, the, that are being created from those assets will disappear. This is a situation where double counting can lead to overvaluation. Now, I've talked a lot of philosophy here, a lot of strategy and theory about why this is, but I think some simple examples are clear. Let's say you own a bunch of Iowa farmland in the United States. Iowa farmland is great for farming. Well, what you do is you rent out that Iowa farmland to a local farmer. That farmer pays you rent. So now you have both an asset and earnings. You're earning let's say your Iowa farmland is worth $10 million, okay? And on that Iowa farmland, you're earning rent of $500,000 a year. Okay, great. So you have a $10 million asset earning $500,000 a year. What is that worth? Well, it's worth either $10 million or $500,000 a year. You don't get both. Because what happens if you sell that land... Someone comes and buys the land from you for $10 million. It would be foolish of you to expect to receive the $10 million and continue to receive the $500,000 in rent per year. No one would make that mistake in real estate. They're not going to assume that if they buy a rental property, that they can both sell the rental property and continue to collect rents. Yet that's what people are implicitly assuming with stocks that you can value the assets differently from the earnings which those assets are created. They go hand in hand. If you sell one, you've sold the other. So you need to value them the same. Earnings are worth the same as the assets that create them. But here's where an interesting one. Okay, well, what about when companies sell off non-core assets, assets that aren't providing much value? Well, that's very useful, you see, because asset sales, when they're underutilized and not contributing to earnings, that's when your assets count. If a company has a building sitting on a small plot of land, and they're running their, within that building, they have a manufacturing facility, they're producing products, and they're selling those products online. Well, let's say the building takes up 10 acres um, 
and, and the whole process, the parking lot, everything is a 10-acre plot of their land. But let's say they own 10,000 acres. Well, the extra 9,000 plus acres can be sold. Okay, they own this other bunch of land. They don't need those 9,000 acres in order to do their production. So if they sold those 9,000 acres, they could cash that out, pay a dividend, and it won't affect the earnings of the remaining plot used to produce the products. But if you sold all the land, you would lose the earnings. So the key thing is differentiating between the assets that are providing earnings and the assets that aren't providing earnings. That's when they count, when you can sell assets without reducing the earnings on the balance sheet. Yet retained earnings that are used for growth do not count in this type. If you have to retain earnings to buy assets that help you grow your earnings, then you're already receiving optimal usage of those assets. You can't value those assets separately from earnings. And if you do divorce them, then you're going to be seeing something as double counting and you're going to end up with overvaluation. The point of this podcast is to really encourage you to be careful about overvaluing your companies. And I think these concepts are critical and key to this. Let's give another example. I really don't like asset plays. Um, asset plays, you know, there's varying definitions about, but what I see asset plays are is when company, someone looks at a company, it's typically a value investor, and they say, okay, let's say it's farm, not farmland, um, Timberland. So um, there's a company, KEWL Cool, and they own a bunch of Timberland, and that Timberland has been valued at a certain amount of money. Let's say it was $100 per share, and the company is trading at $80 per share. But the company doesn't earn a lot of money. Well, I'm going to be very cautious about looking at a company like this because what you would see is that there's probably a difference between the valuation method used to value the timberland and the valuation method that you would use to value cash flows. And that difference matters. If the timberland is valued at $100 per share, because the person valuing the timberland has a discount rate of 4%, but you have a discount rate of 10%, that means that potentially your value for that land is $40 per share, even if, that, even if the company has received an appraisal at $100 per share. And this can become a problem because what will happen is that a lot of times we'll see land valued or appraised buy a company and they'll say, oh, well, the company will report that the va- land is valued at $100 per share, but the stock's only trading at 80 This is a sign of undervaluation. It could be. But the prop, and if the company has good earnings, if the company's also at a five times PE ratio, that's an attractive deal. But if the company's at a 25 times PE ratio, this is what I would call an asset play. You see, an asset play is a company that has assets that don't earn enough money to justify their price. And so people will basically be overvaluing the asset based upon some valuation method that is divorced from earnings. And what's happening here is either the company or the appraisal is ignoring asset earnings equivalents. 
those assets are only worth as much as the earnings that they provide. Now, potentially, they are being underutilized. Potentially, those assets could be turned around and caused to create more earnings. Maybe there's a management issue. Maybe there's an operational issue. Well, that's interesting, but it's very different because now you're talking about a turnaround. You're not just talking about buying cheap assets. What you're instead doing is buying a company and hoping that they turn around. And then you're hoping that they turn around maybe without any vision that they are on that path of doing so. So that's an idea of an asset play. There's another common example of this, and you see it a lot with net nets, um, where a company has a bunch of cash on the balance sheet. Let's say a company has $100 million in cash on the balance sheet, and they're earning $2 million per year. What is that company worth? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that the company's earning $2 million a year, but half of that, $1 million, is from the interest that they earn from the bank on their $100 million in cash. So the $100 million in cash is sitting in the bank earning $1 million per year because it's earning a 1% interest rate. Meanwhile, the rest of the company is profitable and it produces a million dollars per year in profits. So we have a company that produces $2 million a year, has $100 million on the balance sheet. What are the various ways we could value this? Well, one way would say, okay, well, let's take the cash and we'll remove that. Say the company's worth $100 million in cash plus the earnings of the company. And you can say, okay, well, they have earnings of $2 million and they have earnings of $100 million. Well, let's assume that we're somewhat smart and remove the money that they're earning from interest. And we say, okay, the business is earning a $1 million. And the company is earning and has $100 million in cash. So then we're going to say, okay, well, that business that's earning a $1 million a year, we'll put a 10 times PE ratio on it. Let's say it's not growing. So that part of the company, the business itself, is worth $10 million, And then you also have $100 million in cash. What should you pay for this company? Well, I've seen some arguments that basically follow the line that like, well, it's worth, the business is worth $10 million and the cash is worth dollar for dollar. So the cash is worth $100 million. So the company's worth $110 million, 100 plus 10. Now it could be, if the company is going to distribute that cash to shareholders and they pay a special dividend and they, they distribute all $100 million in cash to shareholders, then that dollar is worth a dollar. Or if the company is going to take some of that money, reinvest it, and cause the business to grow from making $2 million per year in cash to $20 million per year, well, then that $100 million is worth more than $100 million. But what happens if the company never distributes that cash to shareholders? What if the management of the company likes paying themselves high salaries, likes taking big bonuses, likes making um, share dilution by offering themselves stock, and they basically use the money just to pay themselves and will never distribute the money to shareholders? Well, now that $100 million is worth substantially less. And if we think about it in terms of asset earnings equivalents, it's possible to say that maybe that $100 million is only worth $10 million. Because we said that a business earning a million dollars a year was worth $10 million. Well, then perhaps cash earning $1 million per year 
is also worth $10 million. It doesn't matter that there's $100 million around it. The only thing that matters is how much earnings does that cash create? You see, if the cash is not going to be distributed to us, and we know it's not, maybe there's an insider that refuses to do it, they never want to do it, and you know they won't do it, then the only thing that you can do is value it based upon its earnings. If you were to value those assets based upon their true face value, you're likely to heavily overvalue them. And it would make much more sense to value the cash at $10 million. So now we have a company with $100 million in cash and a $1 million per year business that I would value at $20 million instead of $110 million. That's a substantial difference. You're talking over 80% difference in the price that I place on this company. Because the cash is not available to shareholders. It's not going to be distributed. This company is controlled. The controller does not care about you minority shareholders. It doesn't want to give you the cash. It wants to use it for its own personal payground. It likes to have it in the bank. It doesn't care that the money doesn't earn anything. It doesn't care that inflation's eating it away. This is a dangerous situation for investors to get in. Value of assets, whether it's cash, land, whatever, only matters so much as the earnings they can create. Investors buy earnings. When investors buy assets that don't earn money, they can get into a problem. And that's not investing. I hope this has opened your eye or mind into something maybe you hadn't thought about before. Or, I hope that it's found a way where I'm doing something wrong. And I want you to let me know if I'm doing something wrong. Reach out to me on Twitter. Send me an email. Trey at DIYinvesting.org. If you think I'm wrong, tell me why. I want to know why. Because there's a good chance, based upon the results of this poll, 86% of people think I'm wrong that answered my poll. So I want them to tell me why and help me to understand. Because if I'm wrong, it would be good to know that now. Because I'd much rather take the 18% annualized return than the 12% annualized return. So that's the crux of today's podcast. I hope you have found value in today's podcast. I want you to remember that. What I did here in my last example was I tried to show how $100 million in land that's not earning much money is no different than $100 million in cash that's not earning much money. Yet investors are going to highly overvalue the cash relative to the land, even if both are illiquid and neither one will be distributed to shareholders. And I think that's a trap that investors can sometimes get into. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope it's been helpful. You can reach, check out the full show notes for this episode, including my outline at DIYinvesting.org slash episode 87. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. 
I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.